I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, sometimes referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. You'll find it after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. And while you're finding your place, I'll ask that we put our catechism for the week on the screen. We've been studying the New City Catechism on Wednesday evenings, and we'll continue to do that throughout the year. But this being the 15th week of the year, this is question 15. I'll read the question, and let's all together respond with the answer. Question 15, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? Answer, that we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior, the law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. Thank you. Great job. And as said, we break those apart and study them piece by piece on our Wednesday evenings before we gather together and pray. But this portion we have for us this morning in the book of Acts, we've been working our way through Acts since last September. And this is somewhat of an unusual text. Uh, Luke often, it seems, will begin his chapter with something that seems quite notable and spend significant time uh, describing what takes place as it unfolds. And then, as if... To make sure he covers all his bases, we'll see things tacked on at the end of certain chapters as if they're remembered there but need a mention. But we wonder how they tie into other things. They do tie into other things. It just may take a little more work to see the connections. But today we find ourselves in verse 32 uh, of chapter 9. This is the end of chapter 9. We'll read there down to verse 43. May read this, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord for His help, and then we'll see what it is that He has in store for us to understand and to obey. Verse 30, 36, actually verse 32, excuse me, back up just a few. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Leda. There he had found a man, Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha which, translated, means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, 
and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is God's Word, and let's us, as we are accustomed to do each week, pause for a moment and ask for help. Father in Heaven, thank You for this Sunday, for Palm Sunday. We thank You that we can be together. We thank You for Your Word. But Lord, we ask that you open it to us. Help us understand these things, what they mean. And Lord, may we then be obedient for your glory to make us more like you, less like ourselves. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to do something I don't think I've, I've not done enough to count on one hand, but to poll the audience just for sake of something to think about to get us started. If in the last couple years you've lost someone in death, and that would be either part of your family, a loved one, or someone that you know, and then add to that the same period of time if you have been sick. We won't count colds or flus, but a a significant illness, maybe even an injury, I know I'm on that list. I wish I could say different, but many of you remember when I fell off that one-wheeled skateboard (laughs) called a one-wheel and broke my wrist and had to get it fixed. Um, That we laugh at, but say someone, yourself included, needed a hospital, um, lives in chronic pain, depressed, can't conceive these things that we would call physical maladies or death itself if in the last two years you or someone you love or someone you know and I know we're sitting in a church if that's happened raise your hand that's just about all of us and that was the point because this morning we come up against a text that seems to hit people who live in this world, right where we all live in this world. We're surrounded by sickness or death. And there doesn't seem to be anything that any one of us can do about it. We have advances in modern medicine that they did not have a couple millennia ago with this that we're reading. We have access to health care, pretty good health care. Just about everybody does. But we haven't been able to solve that issue. We don't like to think about those things. We certainly like to think that we're in a lot better shape than we really are. And though none of us like to attend a funeral, I think most of us, the older we get, feel like they get more frequent and more frequent and more frequent. So the the question regarding what we study this morning is to consider why that is and to understand where it came from 
And of course to understand that there is one qualified to take those things away. Sometimes he does it immediately. Sometimes he waits. But for his own, he's always going to heal the sick and raise the dead. So the Bible speaks of this man as a suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, it's prophesied that this suffering servant will heal our infirmities. This is familiar to many of you. But in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity, the sin of us all. If we were to just have a basic Bible background, 101 class, you start in Genesis God makes everything in in the, the period of six days, rests on the seventh. All of it is called good, but we've got to know it didn't stay that way because God would not call sickness and death all over the place that affects everyone good. Something went dreadfully wrong, and we learned that that happened in Genesis when Adam and Eve broke God's commandments. He promised them before they did it, if you do this, you will die. Death was only the payment for sin But sin was an affront to his holiness and had to be dealt with. So if we're asking ourselves, we're reading through our Bibles from front to back, this suffering servant is prophesied in the middle of the Old Testament. But by the time we get to the New Testament, we're introduced to this man. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He came, he taught, he served, he healed, he raised the dead. But more importantly, he conquered sin, death, and the grave. But then he went back to heaven. We have all sorts of stories of him healing the sick and raising the dead. And those that he raised from the dead would later go on to die again. But he was different than them all in that he died and rose again never to die again, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Again, this is Bible 101 we're talking about. But the question this morning, after Jesus left, went back to heaven, does Jesus still save? Does he still heal? Does he still raise the dead? And does the book that I hope you've got open in your lap say anything about your sickness? And the death that's been way too close to your home. We could each take a turn and talk about what's on our hearts. Every Wednesday we gather around a prayer sheet that's loaded with people who are sick. Or arrangements made to visit the cemetery after life is gone. Is there hope after death? Does hope end at death? Because... We're going to talk about people who prayed right at the end. Lord, do something. And the Lord did something. But many of us have spent our lives praying and God didn't do anything. And we wonder if hope is lost. 
Does hope end when the heartbeat or the brain waves end? The answer, the Bible tells us, is a resounding no. Hope exists. All your sins have been paid for. This is the hard part. For the Christian, this is is our hell. We're on our way to heaven. And for the lost, it's reversed. So let's see what this passage says. It does tell us that Jesus has something to say, that he still heals, that he still saves, that he still raises the dead. What we just read was this fellow named Aeneas. He was sick and he was healed. And this girl named Tabitha, and she had died. But they canceled that funeral. I mean, just imagine what that would have been like. They're getting their arrangements together, but before it ever hits the bulletin, we need to change that. (laughs) She's fine and well. I don't know of any church or what it would do, but we read in both cases that people turn to the Lord as a result of this. So we pick up in verse 32. Luke changes the subject. It seems different time, different place. We're talking about Paul. Now it's Peter. Went here and there among them all. What I get out of that sentence right there, Peter went here and there among them all. Peter's a busy man. And just think about it. I mean, there's a lot that had gone on. He's a fisherman by trade. He spent three years with Jesus. Watched his Lord brutally killed. But then witnesses his resurrection. Stands on a hill while he ascends into heaven. Then there's Pentecost where he preaches. 3,000 souls are saved. And then he's sent by way of delegation to certify, it seems, that the Samaritans are now saved, believers, He lays his hands on them. They were given the Holy Spirit. That was uh, Jerusalem, then later Samaria. Samaria. He's now in this place called Lydda. And a couple of weeks from now, on the other side of Easter, we're going to start again in chapter 10 and see that he's in Caesarea, which many believe to be where he lived. But specifically, the record here, as Luke tells it, mentions this specific place, Lydda, or Lydda, And the believers are called saints. How many of you would say, you're saved and you know it. Don't raise your hand, but just think. And then how many of you would quickly behind that say, and I completely and totally am happy and fine with being called a saint. I was just raised that way. It's not biblical. The New Testament calls us saints. Why is it we don't like that term? I guess just we're conditioned to think that that sounds so righteous. There's no way we'd ever measure up. But hey... New Testament calls you saints. And that's what it calls these folks. And he's there in this specific geographical place with believers called saints and meets this man with a real name. He was a real man who was really bedridden for eight years because he was really paralyzed. And then Luke tells us what happened. So we look at what takes place. Peter tells the man, Jesus heals you. Now, this is the shorter of the two accounts. It's just a couple of verses or three. So, if you're taking a quiz later this afternoon, who healed Aeneas? Peter? No. Jesus. But Jesus is gone. He went back to heaven. That doesn't matter. Jesus can heal from heaven just as good as he can heal in person. Peter's very specific here. Jesus heals you. Then he's told to stand up. Now, if we're going to try to put ourselves in the shoes of this man, 
Well, we can't do that. He probably didn't wear any because he didn't walk. And I don't think any of us have ever spent eight years in a bed. You may know someone who's spent years in a bed. It's, it's really almost impossible to try to think your way through that. You must wonder how they wouldn't go so deep into depression that they'd never come out. But this man hasn't stood in eight years at least. This is an act of faith, wouldn't it be? I mean, how many excuses does the man have to say, <laughs> my legs don't work. No one's told you. I don't know who you think I am, but I've been in this bed for eight years. I don't think that I could stand trying to do this in front of you and how foolish it would look. But no, that's not at all what we're told. We're told he does it and he does it immediately. Amazingly so. Not only was he told to get up and stand, but he was told to make up his bed. I think this is one of those verses that many a mother has used. <laughs> and I could ask, you know, we've, we started with a raise your hand. Should we ask who made their bed this morning? I don't think we should. Probably about half of us, because if you're married, you know, it only takes one to make the bed. Most time people don't share making the bed, because one can do it better than the other, right? And then I certainly wouldn't ask any kids. Now, I made the bed this morning because I knew I was what I was supposed to explain. <laughs> and of all Sundays not to make the bed, you wouldn't want to do it on this one. Though I make it most times because my dear wife, who's described in Proverbs 31, is up much earlier than me <laughs> and doing many things that go unthanked and unnoticed. But he's told to make up his bed. He hasn't been out of his bed in eight years but he wastes no time and the result is the whole town sees it and turns to the Lord now some interesting implications of all this given what we know about the book that could color up those few verses Luke is writing this Luke is reporting Luke is a doctor Luke is a professor of medicine as it were but he's describing to us not a medical account, but a supernatural miracle. Usually it doesn't happen this way. Now, we should agree and, and, and say, we believe in medicine and we believe in miracles. I think that some medicine is miraculous. If you would tell these people 2,000 years ago that there's a drug called Ibrantz or Picray, these are the drugs that my mother's been on. This has pretty much pushed the pause button on cancer for about five years now. I call it a miracle. I can remember those who used to listen to some who would say that you don't need your pills, you just need more faith. Well, I think sometimes we need pills. If you have a deficiency in your body that the pill will regulate, well, then I think there's your miracle of science the good Lord made all that stuff anyway. I know there's side effects. I know it isn't an eternal fix. But we believe in medicine and we believe in miracles. And it looks as if this is mostly miracles here. But it's interesting it's recorded by a doctor himself. The healing of the souls of the residents in the town were just as much a miracle as the healing of Aeneas' body. We need to understand that theologically too. That, that it's just as difficult 
or just as easy, depending on the way you want to describe it. But it's the same miracle for Jesus to say, get up and walk to a lame man, than to say to a dead spiritual man, you're alive in your mind now. To where you were turned away from me, I'm going to turn you toward me, forgive you of your sins, and give you sonship in the kingdom. So we need to make sure we're not so fascinated with the miraculous healing of the flesh as much as the miraculous healing of the spirit. Both are going on. And the same will happen in the next paragraph too. Can Jesus still do this sort of thing? Is a question that might come up. We do believe in medicine. We do believe it in some regards is described by none other than miraculous. Do we believe in modern miracles? Can Jesus still do things like this? Now, I know some denominations, some theological persuasions would say, no, that kind of thing is ended. And that's one of those places where I was a good student and I listened, but over time I kind of wondered where that was found in Scripture. Do we really want to tie God's hands? Now, some of the things that were done for purposes of signs to validate who He was and to validate that who he was was who he said he was. He can be trusted because he can do things no one else can do. And then he gave the same authority to his disciples who were preaching his gospel. I get that. You're going to need some signed gifts to convince people that this is true. But now we don't see that type of thing. But does that mean God can't do it? I believe he can do whatever he wants to do. Because he's God. And then there's other theological persuasions that want to take passages of Scripture and say, if you pray like this, according to what is said here, here, and here, God has to answer you. You might call it, name it, and claim it. But that He's bound by what He's put in His words. I don't know if I'd go that far either. I know what James is saying, the righteous prayer, a fervent righteous prayer of a... I messed up between SV and King James Version. The righteous, effectual prayer of a fervent man. There's fervent, there's effectual, and there's righteous in there. (laughs) Your version may have them jumbled up. Memorize it in a one on one way, then preach out of another for years, and that's the way it comes out. But it avails much, James says. And then he talks about gathering the elders, anointing them with oil, Confessing sins and they'll be healed. And I've been in my father's study at church in numerous anointings. Sometimes God healed, sometimes He didn't. Physically, I'm speaking of. So, what does that mean? Is there bona fide, blank check, name it and claim it passages? Or does the Lord, the same as He. He does whatever he wants. He doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do because he's God. Sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't. I think that's the correct way to look at this. So it's bad teaching to say that God has stopped healing. It's bad teaching to say that God must heal. It's good teaching to say that God can heal, does heal, and when he heals, he heals for his glory. And we praise his name. Hopefully when he does and when he doesn't. So how do we know these things? Are there any texts that will help us with with such passages? 
Because sometimes when we get in a spot where someone that's very close to us that we, wouldn't, we can't conceive of life without them is sick. And we, we might have itching ears to hear people say things that may not be true of this book or allow them to stretch it one way or another. Paul is probably one of the best situations. And there's times in Scripture where he prays and he's given authority to heal, and there's times where he prays and healing doesn't happen. Uh, There is his sick traveling companion where he specifically says, I left him sick in this area over here. That's after we know that he's healed. Paul can't heal his traveling companion who helps him. Is there anyone who wants to say that uh, this fellow who God has gifted for this man, the best evangelist in the world, best pastor, best teacher, best theologian, he needs some help, but the guy's sick. So pray and fix him up and get back to work. But that's not how it reads. And then there's this business called a thorn in the flesh. And that was his problem. And we don't even know what it was, though there are people who have ideas. Scripture never says. We just know that Paul specifically says that he sought the Lord three times, fervently, kind of like what James was talking about. And did God heal him of his thorn in the flesh? No. This is the Apostle Paul. If anybody had an inside track for favoritism, perks, and uh, what do they call that, a gold-plated health and life insurance? Not for Paul. He got his answer to his prayer, and that was, my strength is made clear in your weakness. No one ever wants to pray and be told by the Lord, you're more useful to me in pain than in comfort. I can do more through you and your hurt than I can do through you and your pleasure. Told you this was an unusual passage. And all that fits if you just try to put yourself in the place of Tabitha's family. Why? Look at all this stuff she does. She's so helpful. Why in the world would this happen to her? Or anybody that has to look on another fellow who's been in a bed for eight years. What's the sense of that? Only the Lord knows. And most of the time, He's not telling. Sometimes He tells us. So as far as Paul's personal request, he got his answer, but it's not what he wanted. And what do we learn from it? We learn to pray fervently. And if the Lord heals you, you praise Him. And if He doesn't heal you, you praise Him. Because we know that His grace is enough. And if this world does resemble hell... On the other side is glory, which we can't even explain. Even Paul himself was told, hey, that stuff I showed you about later, don't write any of that down. Just like you can barely contain it, nobody else would be able to. (laughs) It's a secret. It's classified. Only the Lord knows. So let's, let's look at Tabitha's story. Anyone in here know somebody named Tabitha? Boy, it was just full of raise your hand opportunities, aren't we? I knew one Tabitha. She was at Word of Life. She was my sister's friend. We called her Tabby. No one called her Dorcas. (laughs) Except for a few people, and that was a joke. And I don't know why 
Some cultures consider a name beautiful and others don't. This side of the ocean, we go with Tabitha. And it, it goes back and forth in the text here. The other side, there's Dorcas. And there's only one use for Dorcas that I've ever known of. And just about every church I've ever known names a circle after Dorcas. Why? Because we like the sound of the way she acted. It's a beautiful name and a beautiful character. Beautiful personality. Um, Tabitha was full of good works and acts of charity. That's what the record tells us. But she's not the hero of this passage. We would like to do that. Hey, be like Tabitha. And that's a good thing. But the hero of this passage is the hero of the Bible. And that would be the one who took our sins on himself. She was from Joppa. That's uh, a, a coastal town, a port city. Do you remember where Jonah came from or where he left from, actually? And it's not far from Lydda. And really not far at all from Tel Aviv these days. Uh, Luke simply tells us that she had been ill. Doesn't tell us what the problem was or how long she'd had the problem, but she died. Peter was called. He was close by. He came and was taken to the upper room where her body was laid. This is what's called a pastoral call. And they're always difficult. There are some calls you know when you pick up the phone. This is a difficult call to take. They're never planned. They are about the height of honor that a pastor can receive to go visit a home and share in a family's deepest of pain. They don't teach pastors how how to navigate these visits in seminary. The best school for this type of thing is the same class. People used to say my father did a good funeral. That's because he went to a lot of them, younger than most. And it's always difficult. Uh, it's easy to laugh for those who laugh. It is always hard to weep with those who weep, but this is where Peter is, and he came, and he was there. It was difficult, and it was heavy. And when he got there, there are these widows who showed these articles of clothing that this girl had made for them. In that like funerals, you talk about the things that were nice about the people that are gone. And sometimes you hear of things that you never knew about someone. That's been the case here. I've gotten to know some of Wake Chapel's members better through the process of a funeral, having not had the time to grow up with them as you have. But thinking your way through or trying to put yourself in the situation, uh, this one's especially sad. Um, there's a lot to be said of this lady. Full of good works, that's a general statement. And acts of charity, that's a bit more specific. But it basically means she made things for people who couldn't pay her back. You know anybody like that? You ever go to somebody's house and you're not going to go home empty-handed? It might come in a jar. It might come in a bag. It might come in a crock pot. But you're going to take something home. And it's homemade. And it's good stuff. The hard part about growing up in a pastor's home 
is learning that it's good stuff before you know f- by experience it's good stuff. You're like, I didn't need another jar of jelly, Dad. Or I don't know that I want this sweater with a bird knitted on it. <laughs> or whatever it was. That's what, from Home Alone? But the stuff that's given to you, some this was a culture where they made everything. We kind of turn our nose up not only to not store-bought stuff, but whether or not it's brand or generic sometimes. This is, this is I think, better than, than special. I remember uh, a visit with my dad at an assisted living place one time. It was near Halloween. I might have told you this before. But this elderly saint... Uh, that we went to visit. Before we left, she had to make sure we both got a handful of candy out of her candy bowl. And you could tell. It was old. It's probably uh, sticking to the wrapper, you know. It gets kind of squishy. It's hard candy. We got in the truck, and Dad put his in the cup holder, and I did too. And he looked at me and said, Son, neither of us needed candy today. She needed to give candy and don't ever forget it. There's something about the way people connect with each other when they share stuff with each other, they share life with each other, or they share when life ends for one that's close to them and the others that knew them. The older you are, the more you say, Amen, that's the truth. But when he gets here and he sees these people and he hears what they're saying... He put all of them out of the room. Any of you, when we read through that, thought, okay, this is a lovely setting, and he runs everybody out. But evidently there's something that's going to go on that's not for everyone to see. They're around the corner, and he kneels. Now, you can pray anywhere, anytime. We know this in Scripture. Some people pray standing. Sometimes they put their hands in the air. I don't, I don't know. I've been to seminary There's ever specific instructions to bow heads and close eyes. Though sometimes that's fitting. It cuts out all the distraction, right? Especially when you're sitting next to other people that might be doing something that's more interesting than praying or listening to someone pray. But the point is, he knelt. Sounds formal. And then there's the answer to his prayer because of what happens next. We're not given any of that information. We're just told that he says, Tabitha, arise. She opens her eyes. She sits up. And if, if you're writing this for the screen, it's beautiful. Peter gives her his hand and helps her up. Then they go around the corner, I suppose, or down the hall or down the stairs. And he presents her to everyone else alive. And the funeral's canceled. The result is the same as with Aeneas previous paragraph everyone hears about it many believe in the Lord so another double miracle a saved body and saved souls both are miraculous now I know this is different because we haven't seen anyone healed miraculously like this we've not seen anyone raised from the dead so praying prayers like this I don't think any of us have prayed them exactly unless we were very young maybe when you're very young you pray to the Lord that you learned about in Sunday school to bring someone back who's gone 
Or maybe you're just praying fervently at the side of someone's bed or maybe after a diagnosis. But it's a desperate prayer because it matters maybe more than life itself. All the time you've spent seems to flash by and you wonder how in the world can things stay the same with news like this. I remember exactly where I was when I learned of mom's cancer diagnosis. I remember exactly where I was when I learned of Corey's mother's cancer diagnosis. I watched her walk around on the phone. She watched me walk around on the phone. We prayed some desperate prayers. And in the end, God healed both our mothers, but in a different way. My mother had, not technically, but a... a, a, a working remission. Seven years is when you get your real remission. She's a few months short. Cancer came back. And the drugs they've had have, have, have given us time we didn't know we'd have. Corey's mother went home to be with the Lord seven years this past week. My mother was healed temporarily. Corey's mother was healed eternally. And there's something you can learn in that. When you belong to Jesus, or your family member belongs to Jesus, you can throw out one of those three answers that you were taught in Sunday school. When you pray, you get three answers, one of three answers. A yes, a no, and a later. If they belong to Jesus, throw out the no. They will be healed. It's a yes, right then, or it's a later healed. But they're going to be healed. When the cancer in my mother's body more than likely ends her life if the trumpet doesn't blow before, she's going to be eternally healed like Corey's mother's eternally healed. And the rest of us walking around as uh, dead men walking, our bodies are growing old, they're, they're breaking down, they don't work like they used to. There's not a Sunday that I know that goes by that one of us don't talk to another one in the hall about what hurts. <laughs> Earlier it was Kevin down the hall watching the screens about backs that hurt. His back hurt riding a motorcycle. My back hurts from using a chainsaw. It didn't used to hurt. My son's backs don't hurt. That's why I take them with me. <laughs> That's why they were born. That's why we feed them, give them clothes and a place to stay. That's the way I was raised. But folks, if you're not saved, then what? The world has lots of options for you to consider. Maybe you just go to sleep. Maybe that's game over. Maybe it's all gone. Maybe you were an accident when you came into being and you'll be an accident when you leave. Meaninglessness on both ends and really just a party in between. Or God has written the script for all of this. And in some way he gets glory for all of it. Good, bad, and ugly. And in some ways he uses what hurts us to glorify him. But in the end we all live happily ever after. Those that are saved by grace. It's passages like this that speak to it. Now he doesn't heal like this anymore. But he had to do it once. To tell us that he can do it, right? 
That's what this points to the fact that Jesus, after he left this earth, can still heal. He can still raise the dead. And he's promised to do the same thing. I said two weeks ago in uh, New Members, I said it standing on that hill, the funeral we talked about on Wednesday that I went to Danville to do uh, days ago. I told him a funeral is a terrible thing to waste because a funeral is mandatory thinking about death. You can't get through it without thinking about death. But as soon as it's over, we want to get back in the sunshine and forget about death because no one wants to think about death. And the younger you are, the harder it is to think about death. But I'm glad the Bible shows us death a lot because it makes us settle that. A child of God knows what to expect when we die. But if you don't know Jesus, then you don't know what to expect. Here's what I would say to those who are thinking this through. Maybe you haven't become a believer yet, but you're thinking about it. Look the world over. Browse all the religions. There's only one religion that talks of a man who was God, who died himself and came back. That means he has authority over, has conquered sin, death, and the grave. Who else would you trust with your death than that man? You can, you can buy life insurance all day long. Uh, I pay once a year so that if I get hit by a train, my family's still solvent. But that doesn't do anything for me. I'll be gone if they cash that in. No one has died and come back from the grave that wasn't Jesus. And told us what to expect if it happens to us. When it happens to us. There's no such thing as a reference point to the other side of this life. You've got options. Some call it religion. But there's no story like this. That, that, that's, that's anchored in truth. Geographical locations. Real people. Real time. A real resurrection. And a real ascension into heaven. I let him write your life insurance policy. And it starts with believing that he was who he said he was. That's the price of admission. The rest of it is grueling and it's tough. Because you have to trust him through the rest of your days. With an ever increasingly broken down body. And lots of goodbyes. The funeral that we had was for the wife of someone that I was able to conduct the funeral service for. Uh, I think that was seven years ago, too. And I, this was one of the first situations, pastoral call on a Wednesday night after church. This man had been in for a routine thing. He'd been on a trip, got a blood clot in his leg. They needed to try to move that. It moved, but it wound up in his lungs. And late, the night before Thanksgiving, a Wednesday evening, doctor comes in, sits down, and says, we've given him all the clot buster we can give him. This will either work or it won't. Took shifts. I didn't want to take a shift. I haven't seen anything like this. But I held a man's hand while he left this world. 
And then I went and sat down with his family. And we cried. And then we walked across an empty parking lot at about one in the morning. Nobody's there. It's weird. And the only thing I knew to say to this family who'd left their daddy in the hospital was, I don't know what people do who don't have Jesus. We got in our cars and we went home and crawled in the bed. I had my family with them. They're minus one. Now, him and Joni are with each other again. Kids are still there. We had a good cry last week. We'll be doing more crying as more people go to glory. But it was Corey's mother, right before she left this world, who said to my wife, I don't know why we fight to stick around this place when we weren't made for it. And she shocked hospice and everybody else, went home early. Hospice comes in, they're all on the front porch. She walks right past him to see how Becky's doing. Becky's gone. But folks, this is life. Right here in our Bibles, we live it, you live it, you raise your hands. Either you have hope or you suffer as those who have no hope, as Paul called it. I'm glad we have hope. I'm glad for a girl named Tabitha and a man named Aeneas. I'm glad that Luke decided to include them so we'd have something to say, something to talk about, something to comfort each other with. I've since added something to, I don't know what people do without Jesus. I've added to that, and I don't know what people do without a good church. This is a good one. And I'm certainly glad to be part of it with you. With that said, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Palm Sunday. We thank you for the truth of what we'll celebrate next week, Resurrection Sunday. We thank you that you are alive, seated at the right hand of the throne of Almighty God. Lord, we thank you for dying for us so that we don't have to. Taking the punishment of sin on your shoulders so that we could survive. Lord, I ask that you impress upon those who do not yet know your name as your children know your name to trust you with the one who conquered death for them that they can survive the process through your righteousness and not their own. Lord, would you give us people to tell this amazing story to? Would you give us the guts to tell it and to tell it real and authentic? Lord, bless those in this room who are sick. Bless those within reach of this room who are dying. Lord, would you give us compassion? Would you give us the ability to weep with one another? And then, Lord, would you give us the joy to laugh with one another? Lord, all for your glory and because of your grace that we have through Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.